Welcome to MindReadings Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice, animated by the question of whether doctors and patients speak the same language and how we can use narrative to bridge the evident gaps. MindReading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the Diseases of Modern Life Project and the University of Birmingham, expanding to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland, most notably the UCD School of English Drama and Film. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research and contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health. The podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we have to postpone, and is brought to you by the RCPI Archive. And this episode is brought to you by the School of Agriculture and Food, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, with particular thanks to Frank Monaghan for making it possible. Our final speaker for this episode, Rewriting the Stories of Disabilities, is Dr. Maria Stewart, lecturer in American Literature and Crime Fiction in the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Maria's recent research is in disfluency studies, an interdisciplinary field that explores representations of stammering across cultural forms, drawing on literary and cultural studies, disability studies, politics and philosophy. She's the principal investigator for the Wellcome-funded project Metaphoric Stammers and Embodied Speakers, connecting clinical, cultural and creative practice in the area of disfluent speech, a project that approaches stammering not as a disorder seeking a cure, but as a form of communication that challenges normative concepts of speech, the pathologizing of vocal difference and the cultural narratives that sustain these. Maria is co-editor with Daniel Martin of a special issue of the Journal of Interdisciplinary Voice Studies on Disfluency, March 2021. Welcome, Maria. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, thanks very much for the opportunity um, to be here today and to be discussing this um, with the other people on the panel. I've really enjoyed the previous contributions by Deirdre and by Erwin. I wanted to talk a bit about the project, Metaphoric Stammers and Embodied Speakers, and maybe try and give a sense of the people that are involved in it. And I think the kinds of questions we've been asking each other over the last year or so. The project began as a conference at uh, UCD, and the aim was to try and bring together people with a real investment in uh, stammering, you know, to whom it really mattered, but that were coming from different uh, uh, perspectives. And three strands emerged from that. Um, the clinical strand, so the group of speech and language uh, uh, therapists that are involved, working with stammering in terms of children, adolescents and adults. And those of us then in the humanities who were really interested in representations of stammering in literature and film and television, and also people that were quite interested in the kind of political and economic readings of, uh, of, of, of uh, disabled speakers. And then finally, finally, but definitely not least, because it's been one of the most dynamic strands, has been the creative strand. So just working with writers and artists and seeing the way in which they really use their creative art as a way of exploring their own experience of uh, stammering. But I thought for today that I try to look at the project specifically through the lens of narrative um, and just think about the ways in which the project converges on narrative. Um, and the possibilities of narrative from very different perspectives. In terms of clinical work, uh, narrative practice is relatively recent within speech and language ther 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 therapy. And it's a form of practice that a lot of our colleagues, therapy practice that several of the clinicians are, are drawing on within the group. Um, I'm thinking here of the work of uh, Margaret Leahy, Mary, Mary O'Dwyer and Fiona Ryan. 
But I think more broadly, narrative therapy is, has also been drawn upon by other uh, clinicians within the group. It, it starts very much from the premise that the clinical encounter is a collaborative thing. That's really important for all of the therapists. So they're letting go of their position as an expert. They're absolutely not positioning themselves as an expert. And the expertise is acknowledged as related to the speaker, to the person who has a stammer. So it's very much a client-centered type of approach. We don't use the word uh, patient within uh, therapeutic treat, uh, treatment for stammering because that's obviously something that we're that we would not be happy with. This isn't a, a illness as 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 such. Narrative therapy, I think, then allows or enables therapists to highlight the kinds of uh, dominant uh, narratives that are shaping a stammerer's sense of themselves. So the kinds of culture narratives that are, are recycling very negative and disabling images of uh, stammering. And out of that then can come a focus on moments in a person's life where they've really challenged or resisted those images of stammering. So moments in a life where someone with a stammer has chosen to speak in public, has wanted to, has gone ahead and has communicated really strongly regardless of fluency. So not in spite of fluency, but regardless of that. And so a narrative practice, then the idea would be to use those moments to build another type of narrative, um, a narrative that's open to ideas of speech that allow for difference and diversity. And that idea of difference and diversity, um, I know people have referred to neurodiversity as well. That's, that's feeding into the practice of some of the conditions in the group, like Sam Simpson and Chris, uh, Chris uh, Constantino. I think fundamentally here to say that for all the clinicians in the group, fluency is not the aim of therapy. That's really important. And the aim of therapy is a much broader look at a person's relationship with their own voice and the way that cultural assumptions can impinge on that. And it very much takes its cue from the individual person. How do they see their stammer? How do they want to approach it? So, again, drawing on what colleagues have said in clinical practice, ideas of working with your block, with techniques for speech therapy, that can be part of the package if particular people want it. Another recent way of working with it, and I was thinking of what uh, Deirdre said, is um, avoidance reduction therapy. And uh, Jonathan Link, Link, Linklater in the group um, works very much with clients to work on reducing avoidance because um, it really restricts your experience and your quality of life. And um, so that idea maybe of letting go of um, covert uh, stammering and letting it be more public. So acts of disclosure, not just in what you say about yourself, but how you actually allow yourself to speak. Um, but all of these are choices. They're not clinical imperatives. So that's what I've learned from the therapists, the clinicians in the group that the focus is really on choice and agency. Um, now, that obviously is difficult for colleagues who are working with children. You know, obviously, ideas of agency and choice. You're necessarily also working with pet parents who may have real anxiety and real expectations around their children and what they feel would be best for, for that child. You know, that's a complex 
uh, landscape and colleagues are working within that. But they're very much carving as much space as they can for the autonomy of the child. One colleague talks about sending out in, in invitations to therapy because an invitation implies choice. You know, so just those ways of trying to work, to work within the realities. In terms maybe then of where the humanities can come in here, um, I think that as therapists are recognizing more and more the ways that cultural narratives outside the clinical setting are impacting on the work that they do, I think that the kind of work we do in the humanities, the analysis that we do of how narratives uh, represent stammering can be really useful. It can be a way, I think, of, of gaining greater control over the messages that are out there. So the kind of work that we would do would be um, trying to identify what cultural narratives are saying about stammering. So how stammering is being represented through fiction, through television, through literature. How, how those messages are being conveyed. So how narratives work. And I think that's very much where people who work in literary scholarship you know, can come in. What are the techniques? Um, also film studies. What are the strategies that are used to affect people, not just to communicate, but to really affect them? And then leading on from that, the ways in which we can then challenge and question um, narratives that privilege flu fluency over everything else. So that would be the um, narratives that really focus on fluency at the expense of other forms of communication. Can't talk to people yet about what they see on television about uh, stammering, but I, I'm probably going to suggest that there's a whole uh, spectrum of images, and um, most of them not very positive. So sometimes stammering is used as a sign of neurosis, of chronic anxiety, of a kind of sense of somebody who fundamentally doesn't know who they are. They're fundamentally uncertain about who they are or what they want to say. You know, a lot of people say they feel that if they stammer, people think they don't know what they want to say. They don't know their field. They don't have authority. Um, right up to the stammerer as a figure of, of humour. I use that, you know, heard of commas. As someone who works in, in crime fiction, I'm particularly interested in the use of the stammer in, in crime fiction. It's often used as a sign of guilt, really, you know, that it can be the stammer that erupts, out of, you know, that has been buried or oppressed and that erupts in a crime uh, narrative can often be the sign of the unstable or even psychotic type of character who's lurking under the kind of normal exterior. Um, so it, it's a bit of a plot, a plot spoiler. So I suppose I'm interested in the kind of cultural work done crime fiction. is very popular. I'm interested in lots of forms of uh, disability within crime fiction, but particularly the use of sort of the stammering voice to almost signal something you should be suspicious of. Other people in the group, I'm thinking of Chris Eagle's work, and uh, Daniel Martin, they look at the history of speech and language ther ther therapy and how clinical developments from the 18th, 19th century on, how they're represented within literature. Rochea Rodness in the group um, is an emerging scholar, works a lot on very contemporary ideas of stammering. So she's looked at media responses to Joe Biden's stammer. And she's, uh, she's got a really interesting essay on Joe Biden's stammer, Amanda Gorman's poem at his, his uh, inauguration, and the hit TV series uh, Bridgerton. 
for the use of the stammer in Bridgerton. So it's, it's a really good essay on sort of the contemporary changes in how a stammer is viewed. And I think the debates around Biden's stammer and authority, you know, are really, really uh, interesting. And Joshua Saint-Pierre works a lot in disability studies, and he's really good at focusing on high economic uh, narratives that treat time as a commodity, then position disabled speakers as time wasters. So, so Josh really looks at how the economy that we live in, the capitalist or neoliberal economy, can really disable the stammering speaker. There's a sense that they're wasting time. They're not efficient. They're not efficient modes of production. So there's a, there's a lot of different ways the work's being done, but I suppose one really familiar narrative, and again, goes back to what Deirdre was saying about sort of the tenacious types of narratives around disability within stammering, it's the narrative of overcoming. We seem to have a real cultural appetite for inspiring stories about curing, about curing your stammer. And probably the King's Speech is the most popular, most recent example of that. But I think what some of us would argue would be that although that film has often been read as a triumph story, a narrative of overcoming an impediment, if you read it closely or watch it closely, it's actually a more complex story. At the very end, um, George VI speech therapist after the radio broadcast, it is supposedly a triumph. It tells him that he stammered on certain words. And George VI in the film script it was scripted by, by a scriptwriter with a stammer, uh, David, David S. Eidler. He says, I had to throw them in, the stammers in, to let them know it was me. So there's a sense of holding on to the stammer, claiming it as an integral part of who, of who you are. And if you even listen to the soundscape of the, the film, the stammer's always there, just underneath the surface. I think what we're trying to do then in the in the cultural strand in the humanities is to read against narratives of overcoming or narratives that privilege normal speech and to try and make visible or make heard and narratives that offer different ideas, ideas of diversity and, and uh, difference. And I think most of all, narratives that allow for the possibility of communication and expression regardless of fluency. And then just to say a few things just quickly about the creative strand. It's been particularly interesting because a lot of the writers and the artists in the group are really keen to show how their experience of stammering has been generative. It's given them an insight, for example, for the writers into how language works. So their experience of dealing with impediment gives them a sense of the materiality of language. You know, not just the challenge of language, but its possibilities, all that you can do with it. And, and that's the same for artists in other forms of communication. Um, uh, Jordan Scott is a Canadian poet whose collection blurt. It's a great, it's a great word, blurt. It focuses on his stammer and the really the embodied experience of stammering. Again, Ed Deirdre was talking about the idea of finding a way of communicating, being in that body. And Jordan is very much trying to, not trying, he does really show how the stammer feels, you know, in your mouth, on your tongue, in your thorax. Um, and a really, um, and also how its unpredictability can change the rhythms of speech in really interesting ways. And I think part of the power of his work is actually hearing him read it 
He's got a lot of readings on YouTube. So his disfluency animates what he's saying. He's also written a children's book published this year, 2020, called I Talk Like a River. And it's based on his childhood experience of having a stammer and something his father said to him. And he, he said that he described his son's voice, Jordan's voice, as like a river, talking about the way in which it was always negotiating obstacles like the pebbles, the stones in its path. And this book is really about the importance of that metaphor. Erwin talked about re reframing things, rethinking things. And I think the power of the metaphor for Jordan was it gave him a completely different way of thinking about his stammer. Jerome Ellis is a musician and a composer, and he explores his use of stammering within ideas of musical time. And also in relation to the position of African-American speakers within a historical time. So he looks very much at the idea of the particular position of the black speaker, particularly within contemporary America in um, history and in contemporary times. He has very much back to this idea of access to time, time to speak. And he contributed to um, an episode of This American Life podcast in which he used a recording of himself speaking at a public event with a stammer. So part of the recording is the long break, the silence, and he invites people into that moment, into that time and space of the stutter. It's a really very powerful piece. So he's inviting people in to share that time and space with them, that time and space that allows for other kinds of communication. I suppose finally then I'll wrap up with um, Connor, Con Connor Foran's work. Connor is a graphic uh, artist and he has created his own font to give a visual expression of uh, disfluency. He uses different types of font to show the very individual ways of uh, stammering. So this is another thing about stammering and there's a lot that's shared in the stammering community, but people do stammer in very individual ways. So Connor uses an elongated letter for a block that's like a, a continual sound, like an S that continues. He uses that repetition, repeated letter for a repetitive block. And then in the midst of his, of his type, of his font, he uses spaces for the complete block, for the silence of the complete block. And he really makes this fluency a thing of beauty. You know, he's externalized it in a way I think that is a great resource for those who stammer, who've always been presented with an idea of their speech as broken or as an impediment. So that's kind of who we are at the moment and what we're doing. So we've moved online and we're sort of keeping up the uh, conversations across disciplines and um, informing each other and challenging each other in different ways. There's a lot more I'd like to say in the group, particularly in relation to what Deirdre and Erwin said, but I'll stop and pass back. Thank you.